Welcome to the Top of the Pile podcast, where you'll find some of the most interesting authors in conversation about everything from their lives, their books, and their big ideas. From health, science, and true crime, to fiction, history, and romance, we'll bring you fascinating conversations about subjects you never even knew about, and some that you do. You can also get more bookish recommendations by subscribing to the Top of the Pile newsletter. Just visit simonandschuster.com.au to join our mailing list. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. I'm Michelle Swainson, and I'm an editor at Simon & Schuster Australia. Today, I'll be chatting with award-winning journalist Jeff Gwynn about his new book, The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and People's Temple. On the 18th of November, 1978, more than 900 people, most of them American, in a remote commune called Jonestown in Guyana, died of apparent cyanide poisoning. They were all members of the People's Temple, a religious organisation led by Jim Jones. The Jonestown Massacre is the largest murder-suicide in American history. In his new book, best-selling author Jeff Gwynn delivers the most authoritative and comprehensive account yet of one of the most notorious figures in American history and answers the question, how could this tragedy have happened? Jeff joins us from Fort Worth, Texas. Welcome to Top of the Pile. Well, I appreciate you giving me this opportunity, and I'll do my best to be interesting. What drew you to write about Jim Jones? Why now, nearly 40 years after Jonestown? One of the things I like to do in my books is look back at history and if there's, see if there's any lessons that need to be learned. And when I started looking into what happened in Jonestown with People's Temple all those years ago, it occurred to me that we were missing the point. The horror of the incident itself, of course, is almost beyond imagination. But I wanted to look more at what was it that Jim Jones could do to somehow get almost a thousand mostly rational, intelligent people to do something that was so awful, that was so self-defeating. And, of course, I learned uh, things weren't that day as we thought they were, and the things that Jim Jones did that were so effective gives us a lesson today about avoiding modern-day demagogues. Mm -hmm. So what did you find most fascinating in your research? I had absolutely no idea that People's Temple, rather than being composed or comprised, I should say, of basically brainless individuals who were just begging for someone to tell them to do something self-destructive. In fact, People's Temple was one of the most forward-working, most socially conscious and effective mixed-race congregations in all of the world, let alone America. Jim Jones and People's Temple for many years, long before they became notorious for that terrible end, did great social good, everything from free food, no questions asked, to those who were hungry, clothing for anyone who needed it. They even took poor children from the American ghettos, kids who never would have had an education other than the streets, sent them to college and paid for everything, tuition, books, housing, meals. They did these wonderful things, and they were capable of such great good. 
that makes the end, this horrible thing that happened, even more awful. And again, the whole idea is to try to understand not just what happened, but how it happened and why. In Roads to Jonestown, you make the point that um, that Jones is often compared to murderous demagogues like Hitler or Charles Manson. But as you've just been saying, he actually attracted followers by appealing to their better instincts, instinct to, to help people and to share everything equally. Who was Jim Jones the socialist, Jim Jones the community leader? Jim Jones, in his early years of his ministry, was one of the great civil rights leaders in America. Even with the things that are happening today and all the racial issues in America that are, that are coming back to light, try to imagine America in the 1950s when there was no law to protect minorities, where discrimination was the rule of the day. Jim Jones, working in middle America in the state of Indiana, one of the bastions of racial prejudice in the United States, long before there were laws that forced people to open up their stores, their schools, their hospitals, every aspect of life to all races, Jim Jones, through sheer force of personality, desegregated one of the largest American cities, and he did it simply by going out and talking to people, explaining why it's better if only you'll go ahead and, and you'll open up everything. No more segregation. Let's integrate. And he moved this powerful church movement of his, People's Temple, to the west coast of California and pretty much was doing the same thing. One of the things that shocked me in, in writing this book and researching it, if Jim Jones let's say, he had been hit by a car and, and killed in the late 1950s, the early 1960s. He would be remembered today as one of the leading figures of the American Civil Rights Movement, and he deserved that reputation. Unfortunately, as with most demagogues, the more power and influence he obtained, the more he turned into himself and began looking more for power and control than helping others. And so there's this great lesson to be learned right there, and it caught me completely off guard. I had no idea that this was the case. Conversely, who was Jim Jones, the paranoid drug addict? Jim Jones grew up in an, in an odd household where his father, a disabled World War I veteran, uh, was, was given drugs to combat uh, his post-combat stress disorder. And he also was raised by a mother who believed in reincarnation and that she had been put on this earth to give birth to the greatest man who ever lived. So already, even as a child, he sees drugs, he's around them a lot, and he also is taught pretty much from birth that he's special and whatever he wants to do is going to be right. As his power and influence grew once he's out in California, the pressure on him to deliver, when people set themselves up as leaders and tell the rest of their followers, I'm the only one that can solve your problems. If you'll stay with me, I'm going to change the world. They have
have to keep producing miracles. They have to keep coming up with amazing results, and that's huge pressure. Jones began to deal with it by taking drugs, and like most people who think, I'm just taking a few things to help me control my emotions, to help me calm down and sleep at night, to help me wake up and stay alert in the morning, uh, he began more and more to simply string himself out. And as he did this, uh, using amphetamines in particular, his paranoia increased. He began to see the world as his enemy. Anyone who wasn't part of his following was someone to fight. He saw himself now as a general with troops instead of a shepherd with a flock. As his paranoia grew, so did his sense that his people had to be led in some amazing historic act that would cement Jim Jones's reputation in history forever. And gradually, I think, we remember where that led finally in 1978. Um, something that you mentioned throughout the book is Jones's perception of or creation of enemies outside the church, whether it be segregationists, the U.S. government, law enforcement, the threat of nuclear war, um, and also his obsession with loyalty. How vital was this to keeping people's temple together? Jones, if we look at him now and we look at him objectively, was a classic demagogue, and all classic demagogues do certain things. And the first, after proclaiming they're the only one that can solve the world's problems, is to try to make their followers believe that everyone else is an enemy. You're either with us or you're against us. And he, what he was doing, we tend to think, oh, everyone in People's Temple must have been impoverished blacks who were desperate for their civil rights. And that was part of Jones's following. But he also attracted highly educated people of all races, from white fundamentalists who believed every word of the Bible to be true, and were lured to People's Temple by Jones faking miracle cures. And by the way, if you've ever wondered how these supposed uh, wonder preachers can take cancers out of bodies and so forth and just do these amazing things, we do find out all about the trickery. I, I found people who had helped Jones pull these things off, and they explained how it's done. He got highly educated white people, particularly young white professionals, who in 1960s America felt extremely guilty about the racial prejudice that was still present and wanted to try to make up for that. So he had people following for lots of reasons, and he was able to convince each segment of his following that the people you hate most the racists, the oppressors, the government, the IRS, the atheists, anyone that you don't like, they are the enemy and they're coming to get us. And in fact, that's why about a thousand people ended up in a little jungle settlement in Guyana, because Jim Jones was under such personal investigative attack in America. A lot of the dark side of the church had come to light through investigative reporting that he basically convinced his core followers we have to go to the farthest place in the world away where these people can't get at us. And, of course, once they're in the middle of a nearly impenetrable jungle, 
They have no voice to listen to but Jones's, so they gradually come to believe what he constantly preaches. They're closing in. They're coming to get us. They want to kill us. They hate us. And again, that message always resonates with people who want to believe that everyone's against them. But despite that unity that he fostered, he also encouraged members uh, to spy on each other, didn't he? And, and punished people quite perversely for disobedience to his will? Jones, and again, this is not a, an untypical sort of thing, within the church, if his rules were not followed, there were punishments for his followers. He had taught them that you couldn't trust the regular law enforcement officials to do anything. If if someone committed a crime against you because you were part of people's temple, the police wouldn't do anything to protect you. Within people's temple, he would have his rules that must be followed. He encouraged his followers to inform on each other that that's what they had to do to keep the movement pure. And so, for any number of transgressions, which could be something as minor as dozing off during one of Jones's five-hour sermons, smoking a cigarette, a child who got bad grades in school, there would be all kinds of punishments, uh, which could include having to enter a boxing match against someone much bigger and stronger. Uh, there were whippings. There were all kinds of terrible things. But again, he had increased his followers' paranoia to the point where they thought they had to police themselves, that there was no outside authority that could be trusted to do it. And once again, when he's getting everyone over to Guyana, he's taking them away from any outside voices who might suggest, hey, wait a minute, let's take a look at this. It doesn't make sense. What was everyday life like in Jonestown? What was Jonestown? Jonestown was originally intended to be a small offshoot program for People's Temple. Uh, when Jones was still headquartered in San Francisco, uh, he decided that they would try to have a farm community cut out of the jungle in Guyana, picked because it was the only English-speaking country in South America, and also it had a socialist government, and Jones saw himself in People's Temple as true socialists. What he wanted to do was carve out a farm community, maybe a couple hundred members that he would call pioneers would live there, that raise all the food that they needed for themselves, and, and then the excess they could take to feed the hungry and those in need all along the, <coughs> the South American coast. And he sent out these first pioneers, and things were setting up to work that way. But back in California, suddenly a lot of investigative reporting started to reveal the dark side of Jim Jones, the beatings of members in the temple, the refusal to let people leave if they wanted to, the millions of dollars in foreign bank accounts that members didn't know about. And so Jones fled, essentially. He was losing his power base in America. So he wanted to hide out in Guyana, which had no extradition treaty with the United States. And he took almost a 1,000 followers with him. They end up in this absolutely primitive setting. And I promise you it's primitive. I've been there. Mm. And we had to cut our way through the jungle with machetes. It's that thick. It's that overgrown. 
Now, Jonestown was set up to support maybe a couple hundred people and feed them. Suddenly there's a thousand. It's terribly overcrowded. Just getting enough food to live on was a daily challenge. So the people living there would be up before dawn, hard physical labor in the fields. They're exhausted at night. They're really undernourished. They're 150 miles away from civilization. They've given up their money. They've given up their passports. Jones has them. And yet the majority of them continue to believe that they're still in the only place on earth where they will be safe. And through it all, every day, there's Jim Jones in his increasingly paranoid state preaching that the U.S. government is coming, the CIA is coming after us, the FBI, the Guyanese government, and I'm sure occasionally he even impugned the Australians. Anybody who wasn't part of People's Temple, that was the enemy. And so these people lived under really horrific, rough conditions, and yet still hoping Jim Jones was going to be their savior. One expression that's been that's become synonymous with the Jonestown tragedy is don't drink the Kool-Aid, which refers to the cyanide-laced drink that people were ordered to swallow to commit suicide. We know that it was actually a rival brand called Flavorade, but aside from that historical detail, why did they do it? Why couldn't 900 people say no to one man? Actually, quite a few of them, several hundred, did try to say no. Leo Ryan arrived in Jonestown, American congressman, because he'd been told that some of his constituents were being held there against their will. And he shows up in Jonestown with a a TV crew, some newspaper reporters, and some of these relatives, uh, enters into Jonestown and spends a day there out of almost a 1,000 people. Only 15 tell Leo Ryan, yes, I want to go with you. And before Ryan leaves on November the 18th with these folks, he actually tells other people in Jonestown, Jim Jones has proved his point. You know, he's not holding people against their will. He would have gone back to the States to say that. But Jim Jones, increasingly paranoid, the way he looks at it, if one congressman comes and takes people away, that just means more are coming. And this will keep happening until all his followers are gone. He sends assassins to follow Ryan and the people who were leaving. Uh, They're ambushed. They're unarmed. It's a slaughter. Five people die, including Leo Ryan. Back in Jonestown, Jones calls everyone left together uh, in the pavilion in Jonestown and says, look, the congressman's dead. I didn't do it, which, of course, was one of his lies. But now you know that the army's coming, and the thing we have to do is commit a revolutionary act. We'll kill ourselves just to demonstrate to them they couldn't force us to do anything. They're coming. They're trying to take away our children. Please remember that over 900 who die that day, a third are children, infants, toddlers who have no choice in the matter. Another couple hundred old people, 70s, 80s, If they don't do what Jones wants, they'll be dead in a day anyway. That jungle is rife with with danger, with animals that can kill you, poisonous snakes. So it's pretty horrible. There are also armed guards. When the vat is brought, and there's a tape, if uh, 
people want to hear Jim Jones in these last minutes, they can find it on the Internet. He's wanting everyone to line up. But death by cyanide is the most horrible way to die. It robs your body of the ability to absorb oxygen. You go into convulsions. You froth at the mouth. You suffer. So the children were dosed first, and they have no choice. And when they're dying horribly, many of the adults refuse to line up and drink the poison. But Jones says armed guards surrounding the pavilion and those who won't voluntarily drink the poison are held down and forcibly injected. And I've seen the autopsies. Uh, the Guyanese coroners uh, made on the spot. You could tell that there were so many. They had an extra abscess on their body where the needle went in. So this wasn't mass suicide. Perhaps a 100 people so believed in Jim Jones they were willing to do it. Others were just exhausted and thought they had no choice. Still others fought against it, and they died. It was murder. So please never call it mass suicide, and please don't think this was a group decision. It was anything but that. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Jeff's new novel, The Road to Jonestown, is out now. Well, I hope that readers get something out of it. Again, there's lessons to be learned from what happened then that I think are, have a lot to do and can be useful to us today. It's a sad story, but I think it's an important one.